Welcome to The Vine, a plant media project podcast with your hosts, Elizabeth Sheldon and Gina Venzel. The Vine is an insightful look into the world of plant medicine, exploring the changing landscape around cannabis and psychedelics and ending the stigma through educational discussions. Today, we have Montel Williams, the Emmy award-winning television personality whom Americans invited into their homes for more than 17 years. Alongside his TV career, he's also an inspirational speaker, author, entrepreneur, and advocate for patients worldwide, and a veteran of both the Marine Corps and Navy. At the height of his TV career in 1999, Williams experienced his first symptoms of MS, a sharp and 24-hour neuropathic pain in his feet and legs. When pharmaceuticals proved ineffective for pain management, his doctor recommended he try cannabis. Williams became an early advocate of cannabis law reform in the U.S. and was one of the few high-profile voices on Capitol Hill fighting for their rights. Over the past two decades, he has worked to pass cannabis legalization in key states and led the push for military veterans to access medical cannabis without the threat of losing benefits. Now he serves as the founder of Lenative Scientific and Montel brand of cannabis products, while he also hosts the Let's Be Blunt podcast, which provides education and information on the cannabis industry. Welcome, Montel. Thanks so much for having me, ladies. Thank you for being a part of it. Let me be a part. Yeah, welcome. Um, we always we always like to start off hearing about our guest's journey with plant medicine. And even though yours is very public, there are some things about you that are particularly dear to my heart um, that we'd like to hear more about. You're originally from Maryland, my home state, and you attended the Naval Academy where my son will graduate in May. So what is your story of growing up, attending one of the most pre- prestigious military um schools in our country and becoming an American television icon. <laughs> what's, what's... That's, that's a, that's, that's a book in itself. Um, <laughs> you know, I, can, I can shorten it up a little bit just to let you know, it's like, you know, I did, I was born and raised. Uh, I was, I think you'll know this being from Maryland. Um, I uh, was born in uh, at the time, one of America's biggest ghetto areas in this country, which was Cherry Hill, Baltimore. Wow. Um, as a matter of fact, I grew up about um, three blocks from the city dump, which was, for those who don't remember, uh, was was the first um, super fun cleanup site in the country where we recognized that we had been contaminating our soil and mm-hmm. contaminating the country. The dump in Maryland was a dump that was used by Bethlehem Steel. And you know, I, my, my parents' house was a little less than three blocks from that dump. Um, I remember as a child, uh, literally, like so many other kids in my neighborhood did, we played in the garbage fringes on the ring of that dump. Hmm. Um, and I wonder why later on in life I became a person with such a severe neurological disorder. But um, not that uh, those caustic chemicals caused my MS because it probably will end up proving in about 10 or 15 years to be I had a genetic predisposition, but I'm pretty positive that that had a lot to do with, you know, how that played out later on in my life. Uh, I was born to a family of two really hardworking parents who worked their tails off to get uh, their family out of the ghetto and uh, grew up in the suburb of Baltimore, which is Glen Burnie, uh, a product of busing. I was bused to schools um, from my you know, black enclave neighborhood to an all-white neighborhood, which is Linthicum, Maryland, and uh, went to school in elementary school, high, uh, junior high school, and high school, um, and, and did very well in school. I um, 
I was a kid who was involved in lots of different things. I played sports. I was very active in uh, student politics. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was the first student uh, assigned to the Board of Education in Anne Arundel County. Uh, the first time that they did that back in 1973. Um, but I also was my class president, uh, 73, my junior year, my senior year. I was a student on, on uh, uh, the Maryland Association of Student Councils uh, student government. I was in the Chesapeake Regional Association of Student Councils. So I was very, very active as a you know, kind of politically minded as a kid. Um, but I also played music. I played the band. Also did sports. I lettered in three sports at uh, Andover High School, um, and you know, uh, again, I'm a product of the early '70s. And if we think about it, you know, um, you know, my older siblings and the older generation of, uh, ahead of me was the group that uh, literally were so deeply, you know, entrenched publicly in cannabis. Um, and back then, I would say that, you know, I dabbled a little bit in high school, um, not to the point that I think that I would call myself a regular user, but I dabbled a little bit at parties and dabbled a little bit every once in a blue moon when I was out in my band. But then I uh, left uh, right after I graduated from high school and entered the Marine Corps. I uh, went to Paris Island, South Carolina for uh, boot camp and then uh, uh, ended up because of my, you know, um, record uh, while in the Marine Corps, I got selected to go to the Naval Academy Prep School and then to the Naval Academy, of which I graduated from in uh, 1980 and went on to become a special intelligence officer in the military for uh, the next uh, almost 10 years uh, after uh, my graduation. Um, and then I ended up spending the last four years of my service really in and out of reserve duty. Um, but I, um, have to go back and say that it was right before I graduated from the academy that the symptoms of my MS had begun, though they were misdiagnosed over and over and over again. For literally the next 15 years while in active duty in the military, I got misdiagnosed. Um, it wasn't until really um, having done my talk show for nine years uh, that I was finally diagnosed. And um, I spent, I, mm, entire 20s and early 30s uh, going back and forth to doctors almost every three or four months, you know, talking about and, and describing, you know, neurological anomalies that no one could explain because back then a disease like MS was, if you even look at the PER, the physician's death reference, they described uh, MS as a disease of Caucasian women of Northern European descent for which I didn't seem to meet that um, model. Um, what they didn't recognize was the fact that my mother was uh, half white. My mother was uh, biracial and her mother was from Northern European Europe. So um, she carried the uh, possible gene that, you know, uh, was later discovered that, you know, it's, it is a uh, Viking gene that uh, seems to be predisposed people to MS and my mother's, uh, mother was from uh, Northern Ireland or Northern Scotland. And so um, I probably had a predisposition to the disease unbeknownst, unbeknownst to me and multiple, you know, environmental factors and other things probably are what helped to trigger it. I mean, I spent quite a bit of time uh, on active duty on submarines and I used to work out right beside the nuclear reactor. Um, mm. And then though, the, uh, the, uh, uh, fission reactor that we had 
which was uh, the O2 generator. Um, and I also uh, was on a couple of trips where we had uh, reactor scram. So I did have a little bit of uh, extra doses of uh, nuclear radiation. I used to think I glowed mm-hmm. in the dark, but then, um, and who knows? Nobody really knows what actually triggered uh, the onset of MSME, but when it finally did trigger, which was in um, October, November of 99, uh, when I went to see doctors and got my first diagnosis of MS, and I went and got it reconfirmed in 2000, um, right at the beginning of the year, got it reconfirmed. Um, at this point in time, I had already been doing my talk show for, at that time, nine years and um, had been living through symptoms that had started three or four years earlier that, again, seeing doctors, they were always misdiagnosed. But as we look back now at my medical record, recognize that I probably should have been diagnosed in 1980. I could have been diagnosed in 1992, three, four, five, six, seven, but just was never diagnosed appropriately. Um, and so when I finally did get diagnosed, it was because I had gone through, and a lot of people understand what the disease MS is all about. It's a disease that in the early stages, when it's considered remitting, relapsing, it's characterized by what we call episodes, bouts. Um, and I went through a bout that uh, started some of my initial symptoms, uh, which was extreme neuropathic pain uh, in my lower extremities. Uh, along with some uh, visual acuity issues, some pain in my face, pain in my side. And let's go back to 2000, um, you know, and since 2000, even to today or until about a year ago, you know, doctors' only answer to pain in America was opioids. And um, so my early journey with being treated for my neuropathic pain was you know, a heavy round of opioids that literally clearly almost got me addicted. Um, and I should say that I, you know, I, I look back and consider myself addicted at the time because I was taking such extreme large amounts of opioids. And then later on found out that I have an aversion to opioids anyway, so they don't affect me the way they normally affect other people. So, you know, where, you know, one or two may help one person, six or seven is really what I would need to help me. Mm. And, you know, by the time I got done, I was taking various, sometimes eight, nine, ten, you know, varied forms of opioids in a day and not getting the relief. And being a celebrity, I was afforded the opportunity to, you know, doctor shop. So, you know, uh, things that are considered controlled substances, I was able to get as much of as I wanted, whenever I wanted, wherever I wanted, no matter what state I was in, you know, I could find a new doctor at a hotel that would literally write me a prescription for a hundred of these or a hundred of those or 60 of these and 70 of those. And um, my primary doctor ended up finding out uh, and literally I went to see him one time to get a prescription refilled. And he said, I'm done with you. I'm not going to fill these anymore because I know what you're doing. You're doctor shopping and um, I'm not going to be a part of your addiction. And if I continued down the path that I was on, he suddenly warned me very uh, strictly at the moment. He said, dude, your, your kidneys are going to shut down like they are starting to now. And so your intestines, your liver. So you need to knock this off. And this doctor from a very prestigious you know, university hospital in this country um, said to me, look, um, I get your pain and I understand what you're going through. And I have heard through some research that, you know, there are people who have MS the way you do that 
um, have gotten some relief from using marijuana. And he said, marijuana, Tom, not cannabis. And he said, and I'm not going to ever say that I recommended this to you, but because I don't know what I'm talking about, but I know there's a CB something, C, C something, there's different types of marijuana, and you need to find the one that might help your pain. And what he was really referring to at the time was CBD, because that was really the, you know, the information that uh, even our federal government had put out back in 1998, when it applied for its patent that it gave itself in 2002, which is patent number 6603507, 1B, that, uh, describes in its abstract what our federal government believes the efficaciousness of cannabis is as and and is that it is a neuroprotectant. It works for ischemic assault and it works for neurological disorder, degenerative disease. And they wrote about this back in 2001 and 2002. So, you know, this for me was 2002 when I started uh, really searching out to figure out whether or not cannabis could work as a medicine for me. And when I was able to find a grower in uh, Humboldt County that was literally trying to get rid of uh, some of its higher CBD laden cannabis, um, I was able to literally find a supplier who um, afforded me an opportunity to use uh, uh, some some pretty high at that point in time. It was running about 13, 14% CBD along with about nine to 10 percent THC in the same cultivar. Um, and what a lot of people don't know is that we in this country, you know, uh, were responsible for trying our best to grow CBD out of the cannabis plant in the 60s and early 70s. Um, so therefore, there wasn't a lot of high CBD laden plants anywhere in North America. But this particular grower had some and um, when I tried it the first time, I literally had a peaceful night for the first time in maybe 20 years. Um, and then that's what started me on my journey with cannabis and I've remained on that journey till today. It's quite a story. And you know, I really think about, you know, veterans and I know that you, you know, being a veteran and then just caring so much, you know, the work that you do around vets um, to, you know, raise awareness about, you know, how cannabis can be beneficial. Do you really think that we might be close to a time when veterans will have access to cannabis without penalty or threat of losing their benefits? Well, a lot of people don't know is that right now, currently, if a veteran lives in a state where there is a medical cannabis program going on, they will not lose their VA benefits if they are under a medical cannabis program within that state. I shouldn't say they won't lose it. I'll say that they are less apt to lose it because um, the uh, VA did issue, you know, a couple of uh, documents about that. But if they're in a state where there isn't a cannabis program, then they'll be treated as if they're doing something illegally, uh, illegal, like anybody else would. Uh, will the day come? I just did a press conference last week in South Carolina, looking at their new initiative. I was joined with four other veterans who are also out there lobbying and advocating for relief for veterans where we know it works. I mean, it's really ridiculous how we can treat the least of us, the worst of us. I mean, remember it's uh, less than, you know, 1% of this nation ever puts a uniform on their back ever to support and defend this constitution of the United States. And we treat those who have come back and left body parts all over the world as if they 
we don't thank them. We, you know, we use this, this silly ass saying, you know, thank you for your service, uh, like lip service, uh, the same way most people say, hey, good morning to somebody or how you doing to somebody where they really don't care what the answer is. And we do the same thing when it comes to our veterans. We say, thank you for your service. We don't even care whether or not we wait to see what they say back to us. We just say it because it makes us feel better. Mm -hmm. The truth of the matter is, is it's time that we take the patient off the battlefield. I mean, you know, let's go ahead and fight the war all you want, but, you know, put a big uh, red H on their forehead and say, leave them alone. If this is the only relief they can get from defending us, then allow them that relief. And there are, um, I think that, you know, when we get there, you know, it may take a little time for some of these assholes, excuse my mouth, but, you know, these asses that are in the higher ranks in the military to get out. Um, these are people who don't know what they're talking about, don't know what they're thinking about. They have the misconception and, and misinformation about cannabis and will live with that until the day they die. Mm -hmm. And it's that lack of empathy and lack of compassion when we recognize the fact that there is something here that could help so many, we would rather let them suffer. So will it change? I think over the course of the next five years, everything when it comes to cannabis will have changed, but it's going to take us that long, which is really just asinine to me. It's really a waste of time. It is. You know, our lieutenant governor in Pennsylvania, where I'm from, he did uh, what he called a listening tour where he went to every single county in Pennsylvania and asked the people, what do you feel about cannabis legalization in Pennsylvania? And let everybody line up and talk. And I remember this one woman, uh, she, you know, she was just in tears. She was a veteran and she talked about how she was able to get her, her medical marijuana card in PA and it was helping her and it was really helping, but it was so expensive that she can't afford it. And she was saying that she was going to have to go back onto the opioids because that's what she can get covered under her insurance. And like you could hear a pin drop in the room because people really felt it in their hearts. Like this was a woman that was trying to and knew that she found something that was full of relief, but because of how expensive it was, she wasn't going to no longer be able to be a patient. So we hope that maybe through this movement of towards legalization, that it's going to be able to give veterans, you know, better access. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, but I think at the same time, that's, that's really just sad, and it shows you where we are as a nation. I mean, we talk out of two sides of our mouth. Again, you know, you got so many of these leaders running around saying, well, I support the troops, and, you know, thank you for your service, and patting people on the back when deep down inside, they don't really care about what the words are that come out of their mouth. And the truth of the matter is, if there's anybody we're going to help in this country, it should be those who put their life on the line for us. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And even when my son is around and I had one of my beautiful lotions, you know, and he was hurting, he's like, mom, you can't touch me with that stuff. Like I can't test even just to have CBD tea, uh, lotion on, you know? Yeah, it's, it's rid really ridiculous because there was a recent, uh, I think it was the secretary of the Navy under um, uh, the former president who literally said that, you know, um, that he wanted to make sure and ensure that CBD remained illegal for the military, which is really just how asinine can you be? Um, and it clearly shows what they don't know and clearly shows, I mean, how could you stand up, hold your hand up in the air and say, I support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and not even support the laws 
or the research that your own government has done. I, I'm with most, you. Yeah, I mean, most people don't even know that, you know, if the United States government funded probably 60 to 70 percent of research done in Israel during the latter 80s and early 90s, that was identifying what the component parts of cannabis were. Um, you know, our our government has given awards to people outside of the United States for their work in cannabis. And we'll turn around here and say that it's not an efficacious medicine. It's just, it's mm. really ridiculous. Mm. And when we know that other than THC, Delta 19, Delta 9, sorry, there's no other real euphoric aspects to cannabis. So I was going to ask that in, in your healing, like what, what do you use the CBD for versus, uh, you know, a full THC product? No, I, I, I believe that full spectrum is really the only way to go. The plant yeah. was put here for a reason. We, you know, if we have the nerve to think that Albert Einstein knew anything about what he was talking about when he said for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Well, this plant was put on this planet to be the equal and opposite reaction to a lot of things. And we're starting to recognize now how efficacious it is for a myriad of different disorders from cancer to seizures, to glaucoma, to PTSD, to you name it. We know that to MS, to, you know, uh, uh, all forms of neurological disorder. So I prefer a broader spectrum that definitely includes THC, but I ensure that I have CBD in my body every day of the week you know, all day long um, uh, and try to make sure I titrate it. And, you know, again, we have to remember it is a fat soluble uh, oil and chemical so that it's going into your fat and the fat is also, you know, we, we, you know, excrete that in waste because of its interaction with water. And so, you know, the CBD and THC doesn't stay in your body efficaciously for long periods of time. So, you know, to titrate throughout the day is probably the smartest way to go when you're using it. But, um, you know, I, I have preferred for 20 years, I mean, but there was a period of time early on in my journey when I was using extremely high CBD and didn't get the same relief that I was getting when I made sure it was a broader spectrum, including THC. So, you know, I right now, though, um, a lot of people don't know, I, about three years ago now, almost four years ago, I had a massive um, uh, cerebellar stroke. Um, and um, that stroke normally kills, uh, I think, 50% of people who have the type of stroke that I had. Um, yet, I believe that some of the neuroprotection that I had in my body that had existed before that stroke because of my cannabis use is the reason why I'm still sitting here today. Um, That's so, powerful. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I mean, yes. I, I, so I, I, you know, though now after my stroke, I've noticed that my um, tolerance of THC has gone way down. As a matter of fact, it doesn't take much for me to experience a euphoria or a odd feeling with THC. So I don't use, you know, there was a while... And it's part of the reason why I developed out my own products is that um, I want to make sure that you allow the patient the opportunity to titrate themselves rather than give them something that elicits a response that they may not want. And so, you know, I formulated uh, several different formulations of, of THC CBD combined products in my THC products. And then when it comes to my CBD products, 
I um, have been working very hard at formulating. I'm right now, as a matter of fact, back in the laboratory now again, working with a new partner who will become my contract manufacturer. Who we are, and I when I put out my products almost um, six years ago, I was one of the first people in the industry to literally come up with a proprietary terpene formulation that I added to the CBD um, uh, so that there was not just CBD alone. It was CBD extract with a, a, a varied forms of terpenes that I was using to respond to elicit a, a relaxed and alert response. And that's the way I think that we have to do it now. That's wonderful. I mean, I, I definitely um, feel that there's so much misconception that we come across with people just not understanding what CBD even is and, and really being scared that if they use it, that they're going to test positive if they have to get drug tested. So with the broad spectrum, though, I mean, it's we're still talking such well, a small amount. Well, I want to, I want to, to, to not correct you, but just say, unfortunately, because there are so many different companies that are trying to produce mm -hmm. CBD products that don't know what they're doing. And a lot of them are using extraction form processes that really aren't that efficacious. Some of them aren't even really putting in the proper amount of CBD. Some of them are doing extracts that they think and they don't send out to be properly tested. And therefore, it may have trace elements of THC. And then over a period of time, that would build up in a person's system and would falsely test them positive, depending on the efficaciousness of the test that's used. So, you know, um, you know, I've been a big proponent on uh, ensuring the proper testing and ensuring the proper extraction techniques be used. And, you know, uh, if I have to test my products two or three times before they go out the door to ensure that there is zero THC in a CBD product that's got my name on it, I make sure that it is that way. And Yes, you're right. Uh, for people to fear testing positive in a typical cannabis test because of CBD, they are absolutely incorrect because there is no THC in the CBD by itself if it's extracted properly. Even if it's 0.3 or 0.03%, whatever the farm bill says, it, you won't test positive. You can test positive for 0.03% in a hemp extraction that has 0.039%, okay? If it's 0.04%, if it's, right. you know, 0.031, mm -hmm. you know, you gotta be very careful because again, these are fat soluble chemicals that store up and they store up over time. Depending on the amount that you are consuming, that'll depend on what stores in your fat. And if you're tested on the right day because you didn't eat the right, types of food. And let's also remember that everybody's endocannabinoid system, and this is something that is so ridiculous that, again, those who claim to want to follow the science, that should be the first thing that jumps out at them. The fact that we as mammals, like all other mammals on this planet, have a, for lack of better term, secondary sympathetic nervous system that is called the endocannabinoid system that is responsible for your entire body's cellular homeostasis. This was something that was genetically brought, built into you, built into us when we were little monkeys running around on the savanna. You know, we were probably consuming a lot of cannabis because it's what actually helped to maintain our cellular homeostasis. What's that mean? That's what helps us be in that Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. Well, when our cells are just right, we don't uh, open ourselves up to cancer and various other forms of illness. 
And the fact that in the last now hundred years in this country, which started us down the path of outlawing cannabis and hemp before 1937, you know, cannabis and hemp was a part of the diet of the majority of people in this country in some way, shape or form, because we recognize that hemp was one of the highest protein laden seeds on the planet. And for those who weren't eating meat every single day, there were people who were consuming plant and hemp porridges. Um, we know if you go back to our forefathers, every single one of them grew hemp. Every, I'm talking George and all. All of them grew hemp. Our entire revolutionary army was clothed in hemp. It was a law in multiple states that you had to, if you were a farmer, you had to grow hemp because we used hemp for all our ropes, all our sails, all our tents. You know, the word canvas comes from cannabis. That's how we found the West. People don't recognize that when a ship left Europe coming this way, they came over here with about a ton of hemp seed on the boat. Why? Because they were eating it. I learned that on your podcast. I listened to um, uh, last night, actually, right. about the sales and and right. uh, canvas. And, and, and you know, again, it was just because you know false information and you know just really, really, really just bad politics that we started to outlaw cannabis in this country. And I think you know we've seen that since the beginning of that outlawing the, you know the surge in various forms of illnesses that we had not seen that much of before that. Mm. So, you know, um, it's, it's really ignorant to me that, you know, not only do we outlaw the plant, we outlaw the testing of the plant, right. research of the plant. And so we're so far behind in really garnering as much information as there should be available to everyone about it now, but there still is, you know, thousands and thousands of peer reviewed, you know, uh, released uh, articles in medical journals around the world that extol the virtue of cannabis and the fact that we should get back to it. So again, I go back to saying that in the next five years, I think, you know, we will see something change, but it's going to take us that long. And so people have to take it upon themselves, like you said, I mean, to do the research about the brands that they're going to buy. I mean, when the farm bill passed and now CBD pops up at every gas station, you know, it's not going to be the same. And you in buying a product, if you're going to use for any kind of health and wellness, I mean, you want to do the research and look into it. And so the best CBD companies out there, I mean, they have no problem. Like you said, you'll test your product three times. You share your, your, you know, your findings, those third party lab tests, you know, are so crucial because as people just don't know what they don't have the education they don't know what it is and then they buy some you know bogus product from a gas station and then say it didn't do anything to help them and so you know we really just you know love that you've centered your entire brand and everything that you do around the education first and having people get educated on it understand the history of where it came from and why it was outlawed but really focus on we're moving towards the ability for people to get access to it but what products you take really matter and what sources you get are really important Absolutely. People have to understand that, you know, again, the hemp bill passed and okay. So yay, yay. I get the UCBD from hemp. Well, let's remember that hemp is also a plant. It's a, first off, let's get this straight. Everybody needs to understand cannabis and hemp are weeds. They are weeds. That's why they call it weed. They didn't call it weed because they made up a term. It's a weed. It grows indigenously by itself. Don't have to, you don't have to really you know, go out and, and actually do all of the garbage that a lot of growers do and overgrow the plant in a sense, meaning just over farm it 
It doesn't have to be. But one of the things that that weed does do, like a lot of other weeds do, is that it picks up heavy metals. It picks up a lot of very, very bad things that are in the soil, and it runs throughout the plant. If you take a plant that was grown in bad soil and extract the CBD out of it, a lot of those CBD products have a lot of heavy metals in it and a lot of deleterious other chemicals that not THS, THC, but bad chemicals in it. And some of this stuff is what's being put in these gel caps and being put in some of these tinctures that you see in these gas stations. So you might get a product that has, you know, less than, I don't know, you know, less than four milligrams or five milligrams of, of CBD really in it per dose, but has probably 100, 200 milligrams of some sort of heavy metal. So you're actually doing harm to yourself rather than even trying to do what you think is good. So you're absolutely right. I think you should research. You should demand that, you know, whoever your brand is sends you the, you know, uh, off the shelf uh, testing data so you can look at it yourself and make a good informed decision. I mean, I'd much rather buy something that has your name on it, knowing who you are, knowing that you're not, you know, you can't really publicly go out there and sell a bad product. Um, and I think that we talk to so many CBD businesses, these startups, and it's and they're like, well, we don't have money to do this or that. And it's like, it's about and, the brand. <laughs> right. And we buy our isolate from so-and-so or so-and-so or so-and-so. We, you know, they don't even, when's the last time they went into the facility that's actually uh, extracting? They probably never went. They just get a jar in the mail and think, oh, it's got to be good because it says CBD and it was allowed to be shipped in the mail. No, it doesn't necessarily make it. And, and right now, with the fact that, you know, China is now online and recognizes how stupid Americans can be, um, you know, they're growing hemp by the the miles, square mile rather than square acres. You know, India growing hemp, uh, Colombia growing hemp. All over the world, people are growing it now and shipping it, and they are allowed to ship that isolate into the United States. And so, you know, it's now time, and I say buyer beware, because, you know, it's like uh, we've seen, we've been down this road before with China with products that they've shipped in here that they could care less whether or not they were clean or not. And I've heard that they're growing in soil that is not. Uh... Right. And remember, hemp leaches all of that into the plant. You can use hemp to clean a field. You can grow an entire, you know, two, you know, seasons worth of hemp, and it will remove heavy metals from the soil. Well, excuse me, that means it's in the plant. Right, right. <laughs> You're consuming. You are just a wealth of information beyond. <laughs> no, thank you, thank you. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy with what you guys are doing, and um, you know, letting people understand. You know, that there is a world out here when it comes to plant medicine. I mean, that's what the medicine was all about before we had pharmaceuticals, before they decided to, you know, crack in a, a molecule and try to fake something. You know, let's use what God put on this planet. And what he put on this planet, again, if you believe in Albert Einstein, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. That means that for every disease on this planet, there's a cure. And though we may end up losing a lot of them because of, how quickly we are destroying the rainforest um, around the world. Uh, we may not get to some of those cures before they're already destroyed and gone. However, they are there. Right. And we've been hearing about that, you know, that now all of these plant medicines are so popular and 
you know, the frogs are suffering because the Westerners are using all these indigenous uh, medicines. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah and, 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 you know, and we're going after it, it, it because again, it's, it's vogue or it's something that, you know, socially elite get to play around in not recognizing that indigenous people have been doing this for thousands of years and have paid the price to get us to where we are and understand it more. But the, how many of these pharmaceutical companies are hiring, you know, and I shouldn't say or a shaman or hiring people who have worked in this for hundreds of years. They're not. They're out there, you know, some some clown who has a, you know, a bachelor's of science or a master's degree from some university on chemicals that they think, you know, if our body was meant to consume chemicals, they would have been coming out of trees, but they don't. They have to be formulated out of the molecules from the trees. So let's let's stop the stupid. Do you think that I mean we you've been working for you know raising awareness around cannabis for a long time. I mean you've been in this. You're like really been doing this for so long. So now kind of seeing where everything is now. Do you think that we're in a, a place where we're going to be able to see cannabis be legalized soon? And if so, as an industry, like what can we do to get our government officials to really see the importance of cannabis now being deemed essential during a global pandemic? This is such a huge issue. It's it's a, I wish I could answer you and answer with just, you know, one or two sentences, but you can't because it's going to take everything, everyone, all of us. It's going to take Hollywood. It's going to take, you know, uh, the industry. It's going to take, you know, the consumer. The thing that ticks me off the most about this industry is that we spend more time B2B than we do B2C. Hmm. B2B meaning business to business rather than business right. to consumer. Mm -hmm. you know, the consumer is who's going to drive this. We spent, uh, you know, the last couple of years, you know, when uh, uh, really the the last four or five years, you know, I look at the industry and, you know, you go to California, you go to Colorado, you go to Oregon, you go to places around this country and, you know, you walk into a dispensary and the first thing they're trying to sell you is the highest THC laden product that's that they got. Right. Shop. right. As if that THC number is going to make that much of a difference in your overall experience. Let me explain what I mean by that. I can remember back in the early 70s, literally consuming some cannabis that was probably, you know, eight or nine or 10 percent THC that got me 10 times higher than I get off of this 26, 27, 28, 29 percent THC that I get today. The difference may be sometimes that the duration of the euphoria may last longer, but the actual euphoria is not that different than the high that I got 30 years ago. So did we really need to try to trick this plant into growing into something that it wasn't? And then we wanted to grow it in a higher number because we were trying to see if we could market this against the 18, the 24, 18, the 25 age group. And I stop and I think about what cannabis works, who cannabis works the best for, are people really over the age of 55? Yeah. So, and most people over the age of 55 don't want to be so high that they can't think. They don't want to be so blown away that they that they vegetate on the couch all night long. They don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So pay attention to the industry and pay attention to the consumer that you're trying to market towards. Cannabis would be doing so much better right now if we just paid attention to the, the same way that they do in Israel 
where, you know, in Israel, they made cannabis a geriatric drug almost 10 years ago. Recognizing that cannabis helped people who are seniors get off of so many pharmaceutical medications, lessened the amount of money they were spending on a monthly basis on all kinds of medications that they didn't necessarily need. Mm. So it's time right now that I think if this industry wants to move forward and we really want to see personal use, I don't I take the term adult use out of it, I take the term recreational use out of it. If we want to go back to the right of an individual, if I have the right to grow oregano in my kitchen windowsill, I should have the right to grow my cannabis in my kitchen windowsill. Agree. I don't have the ability and I don't have the wherewithal and I don't have the time to sit there and nurture a plant. Then I should be able to go down to the corner, you know, apothecary and buy some that someone has taken the time to grow for me. Ethically, mm-hmm. no, I, I'm. I agree. I I can't grow tomatoes. I'm not going to mm-hmm. grow cannabis. You know, right. I'm I'm somebody who's going to need that corner apothecary. Right, and you know, and at the same time, then if we can just start to think in terms of okay, so I went back to saying we we think too much about B two B rather than B two C. What I mean about the B two C is that we need to start educating the C, the consumer. Letting the consumer know that this is something that they don't have to be afraid of. We have to put more time into spending, sending messages out, more podcasts like these, where we are actually talking about what this cannabis, what it does, sharing the information so that a consumer would recognize that they want to come and ask for it. The only way drugs are sold in America today is that we advertise them and then the patient goes into a doctor and says, I saw this commercial about this stuff that really, well, that, that's how we do it. Well, why don't we do the same thing in educating people about cannabis and letting them understand? I mean, I, I find it ridiculous that I live in the state of Florida and I don't understand why, you know, again, I do get it now that, that COVID has struck, but you know, I was uh, pushing a lot of uh, uh, individual companies to say, look, you know, we need to be knocking on the doors of all of the, you know, adult retirement centers and, and, and geriatric homes across the country and holding seminars inside in front of the people and letting them know this is why you don't have to be afraid of cannabis. It's not going to make you so high. It's going to fall down and break your hip. You don't have to buy that kind, you know? Right. You right. don't get that kind. You don't have to get that high. Right. So, so you know, I think that, again, if there's been one mistake this industry has done and made, and that's been through education and not educating the masses the way that we had the ability to do. And we're going to have to work on some PSA campaigns. And then, you know, but it's going to take a while till people will accept, you know, cannabis campaigns and advertising and messaging. Um, yeah. A lot of work to be done. A lot of work to be done. And all that work's got to get done before I think we change any of the attitudes. I mean, you know, again, I, I did an interview uh, a couple of days ago with, um, you know, uh, 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 Mariah, uh, who is an uh, outspoken. She, she uh, started Cannamoms. And um, she's a young lady who has a daughter, Delilah, who um, has suffered from, you know, brain cancer for majority of her life. Um and we recognize that were it not for her cannabis use, that child wouldn't be alive today. Mm. We know this. There are doctors who will say this. They know this for a fact. That doesn't mean that it works for every single child with brain cancer. But if it works for one, then that one should have the right to be able to do it. Absolutely. 
Right. And, and it is meditation. And it is the mamas, I mean, that are fighting for this, you know, especially when they're children, they can see that that their children can be, you know, just in, have a, some sort of improved life. I mean, I we saw in Pennsylvania, you know, it was the mama bears, we call them, that really, you know, used their personal stories and were strong and, and truly shared all the hardships that they had gone through having to drive across state lines to bring tinctures back to Pennsylvania and break the law in order to help their kids. And so as moms, Elizabeth and I ourselves, we feel like it's kind of it's like our duty to use our voice that we have now to really, you know, raise awareness around this because, you know, there are so many patients in our respective states of Pennsylvania and Maryland and beyond that this is just changing their entire life. And you've never really heard someone say that a pharmaceutical did that. Right. Well, you know, I was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, at I think your capital um, and um, uh, your state house and held a press conference and we'll never forget that the, one of the moms brought their child who was suffering from intractable seizures to the press conference. And another lady literally was there who was an adult who literally fell during the press conference and had a seizure. That's what ended up mm. getting, getting the bill out of committee and getting it on the floor to be voted on. Um, I remember that the legislator who was, um, I can't remember his name, but the guy who was holding it up so much literally took off and, and ducked out of the state that weekend because there were so many people going by his house, honking the horns, and yelling and screaming about the fact that, you know, there are people out here who need real efficacious medication. That's right. Thank That's right. you so much for all of your wisdom. Oh, no. Thank you for having me on. And we want to make sure that our listeners know how they can learn more about your products and follow your podcast. So if you want to give us some links and let us know how we can continue to support you. Well, they can go up on montelwilliams.com and get some information about my products themselves, which are right now we are in the middle of a new uh, relationship that I'm forming right now with uh, a company who I believe already has licenses in Pennsylvania. So hopefully very soon I'll be in Pennsylvania. Uh, I know I'm going to be in New Jersey. And I very recently had a couple of companies reach out to me again from Maryland. So Good. very interesting that uh, we're talking today. But um, as soon as my formulations are re configured, I'm about ready to put them back in the marketplace. I will put out a CBD product that will be able to be sold on the internet and sold nationwide across state lines. And then I'm also very interested in putting out a THC product that I think um, is, a, is a differentiator in itself. Um, that again, I'm, I'm uh, more about allowing the patient to titrate themselves to the level that they want. And you know, there, there are various times of the day that you you know, there are certain needs that when I get up in the morning, there's a need that I have when the middle of the afternoon is a need that I have and in the evening is a need that I have. And I want to be able to meet that need. And so I have products that are formulated that way. And then, of course, you can get my podcast. Let's be blunt. Uh, everywhere podcasts are. So I'm on all the services, streaming services. We appreciate you, all that you do, and for just using your voice to, you know, really share this wonderful knowledge with people and all the continued work that you do for the industry and for patients alike. We just appreciate you so much, and we're grateful to have you on today. Thank you so much, and I definitely want to have the two of you on. Let's be blunt someday soon, okay? That sounds great. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for joining us on another episode of The Vine featuring Montel Williams. Please join us by subscribing to The Vine, a plant media project podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. For cannabis and psychedelic news, please visit us online at plantmediaproject.com. Stay well. <laughs>